hauling Just look at the load I'm hauling Hard work, I hit it harder Ain't nothing new for a backwoods farmer Sun up to sundown Backing up traffic all the way to town Camo hat and a farmer's tan Welcome to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group, your innovative consumer resource and marketing partner of choice for the evolving agricultural community. Now, here's your host, Brent Adams. Well, welcome to another episode of Fast Line Fast Track. It's great to have you with us. On this episode, another round of coronavirus assistance is on the way for farmers and ranchers, as is more funding for the Commodity Credit Corporation. We talk hemp with Murray State University's Dr. Tony Brannon. The Hot Rod Farmer Ray Bohax brings us another installment of Bushels and Scents, and we hear the sounds of rising country music stars, the Render Sisters. You won't want to miss a moment of this one. Let's go. Well, first up this week on Fast Line Fast Track, a couple big stories out of Washington, D.C. Late last week, President Trump and U.S. Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue announced a second round of coronavirus food assistance program funding for farmers and ranchers. The $14 billion in CFAP2 funding will come in direct payments to farmers and ranchers to partially offset COVID-19 related losses for producers. This is an example of government working for the people. We asked for your input and we listened and we updated the program based on the comments that we received. Sign up began on Monday and will run through December 11th. More details on CFAP2 as well as registration can be found at www.farmers.gov CFAP. American Farm Bureau Federation Chief Economist John Newton talked a little bit more about some of the new categories that will be covered by CFAP2. The second round of the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program provides additional much-needed financial support for our livestock producers, our crop producers, specialty crop, as well as extending into nursery, floriculture, specialty livestock, tobacco, and, and several other commodity categories. Newton says CFAP2 provides much-needed relief for losses not covered in the original CFAP assistance. The first round of CFAP provided financial assistance to producers really through the April 15th date, which was right around the height of COVID-19 impacts. And this second round provides support for producers that had financial losses after that April 15th date and extends all the way through, in some cases, the rest of the year for dairy farmers, for crop producers, for livestock producers, it provides support based on inventory held on the farm operation from April 16th through the end of August. Newton provides more information about the program on American Farm Bureau Federation's Market Intel page. The Market Intel page includes a breakdown of where the CFAP assistance is expected to go based on USDA analysis. It also provides commodity-level specific payment information. The best place to get information on the CFAP program is at farmers.gov CFAP. The program opens for sign-up today and extends through December. So producers have plenty of time to get in and sign up for that second round of CFAP assistance. And you can find a breakdown of the CFAP 2 on the Market Intel page at fb.org. Well, also in Washington, D.C. this week, farm groups turned the tide in the election year GOP fight with House Democrats to restore $30 billion in key farm bill and virus funding in the Commodity Credit Corporation. Nearly 50 farm groups covering most of agriculture mobilized to restore the CCC replenishment funds that House Democrats threatened to scuttle from a must-pass bill to keep the government open. It was a huge opening for Republicans to pounce right before a major election, and they did. Senate Ag Chair Pat Roberts, after Democrats relented in a deal that gave them more for school nutrition programs. 47 different farm organizations and commodity groups, they speak for, I think, 
virtually every farmer, rancher, and grower in the country. So thanks to the 47. Robert says it was understandable that farmers were upset as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi made a bargaining chip out of critical farm and conservation payments and agriculture virus relief. United, they said, what on earth is going on? How did this proposal get loose? In other words, keeping us out of the continuing resolution, given the problems we're having, what on earth is going on? Roberts added that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell complained on a conference call that farmers were being treated like bums. McConnell said from the Senate floor as a bargaining chip. But McConnell says things are back on track now with the budget bill. I'm optimistic that with bipartisan cooperation, we'll be able to make law well before the government funding deadline at the end of this month. The continuing resolution will fully fund the government, including the Farm Bill programs, through December 11th. Well, a few other items of note this week from the world of farm broadcasting. Legendary farm broadcaster Orion Samuelson announced that he'll retire on December 31st, shortly after celebrating his 60th anniversary with WGN Radio in Chicago. Samuelson's first day on the air with WGN was September 26, 1960. Prior to that, he had worked at stations in Sparta, Appleton, and Green Bay, Wisconsin. The National Radio Hall of Famer is 86 years old. Rod Bain with USDA's News Service has more. Perhaps the nation's most recognized, storied, and premier farm broadcaster. The Harry yeah. Carey or farm broadcaster there. <laughs> That's a compliment. Thank yes, you. it is. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue three years ago giving his praise to Orion Samuelson. The legendary voice on nationwide radio and television programs such as National Farm Report, Samuelson says, at This Week in Agribusiness, will finish six decades of farm broadcasting with WGN Radio in Chicago with his retirement at year's end. Explaining his approach to explaining agriculture to urban listenership in this 2017 interview. If you're talking about drought and the impact on farmers, you take that onto the city person and say, could mean less feed, could mean less meat coming to market, that means higher prices when you go to the meat counter. His accessibility to and experience shared with his listeners and many in the broadcasting industry is what several cite as why Orion is a broadcast legend. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. And a bit of sad news to report, Evan Slack, a pioneer of farm broadcasting in the western U.S., passed away last weekend. Rod Bain has more. All right, as a kid on the farm, east of Springfield, Missouri, we used to listen to KWTO. I said, someday I'd like to do what you're doing. And like the station personality he talked with back in the early 1950s, he did. In fact, Evan Slack was a radio fixture for almost 70 years. That voice from a 2013 interview, a voice familiar to many in the Intermountain West, across the country, and in the farm broadcasting community. Evan Slack, a pioneer in ag broadcasting in the West, died Saturday at age 86. His best-known catchphrase, on the air and in the air, was due to the extensive miles he flew as a licensed pilot covering events across the country. His stops included Canada and Australia. His interview highlight reel, impressive, with names including Elvis Presley, John Wayne, and President George H.W. Bush. Another catchphrase that became a sort of nickname for Evan from his listeners. Higher, higher. A reference to his daily commodity market reports. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. And one other bit of sad news to report this week from the music side of the house. W.S. Fluke Holland, known as the father of the drums, passed away Wednesday in his hometown of Jackson, Tennessee. He was 85. 
Holland, who was featured on episode 62 of the Fastline Fast Track podcast, was the only drummer Johnny Cash had during his career. He also laid the beat for the legendary Million Dollar Quartet recording session featuring Cash, Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Carl Perkins. Earlier this year, Holland released a book featuring the recollections of his storied music career. You can hear more about that book as well as a recitation by W.S. Fluke Holland on episode 62 of the Fastline Fast Track podcast at fastline.com, also Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Deezer, and Audible. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, hemp is still one of the hottest topics in agriculture and one we've touched on quite a bit here on Fast Line Fast Track. So we wanted to get a status report on the industry from one of the most notable college hemp programs in the country at Murray State University in Murray, Kentucky. Joining me today is Dr. Tony Brannon, the Dean of the Hudson School of Agriculture at Murray State. And Dr. Brannon, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Absolutely. Good to be with you. Uh, always good to to have a break these days and talk about something that's uh, not necessarily COVID related. Yeah, for sure. Well, I tell you what, uh, th- this was something that was really hot and heavy on everybody's minds uh, before then. And uh, I imagine as we get out of that, uh, uh, th- that COVID uh, grip that uh, is, has been over everybody here for the past few months, that everybody's going to start talking about hemp again. Uh, Murray State uh, launched the Center for Agricultural Hemp and also the Journal for Agricultural Hemp. And in 2014, uh, the school planted the first legal hemp crop in, in the state of Kentucky for agricultural research and in doing so became the first university in the nation uh, to participate in the program. And uh, it's been quite a journey for you guys. Absolutely. Uh, a very unique start where uh, uh, we had seed ordered and it came in uh, uh, and came through customs. Most all the other seed got uh, confiscated in customs uh, because there was still some uncertainty surrounding the crop in 2014. Ours came right through. Uh, we picked it up on uh, May, the, May the 12th of 2014 and got it in the ground that day and uh, uh, been growing it ever since. So it's been a long uh uh, winding journey, but uh, certainly an interesting one. So uh, from the time when you first did that, what what have you guys learned about hemp and its uses and also about uh, some of the challenges that uh, still lie ahead? Absolutely. As with any, uh, uh, you can imagine with any new crop, there is a significant learning curve. And I say new crop, but actually, especially in Kentucky, uh, it, it's, it's, you know, a uh, uh, reinvented crop is what I've referred to it as. In the 1940s, it was one of our major crops in Kentucky. So uh, it's it's been a reinvention of hemp here. But, you know, what happened and what worked in 1940s is not necessarily how we do business today. So uh, there's a lot of questions that we didn't, uh, that we didn't uh, know the answer to. There were certainly a lot of times we didn't even know what the right questions were as we got into this. But we've been able to find uh out some things that worked some things that didn't work we've been able to work with the crop and work with its uses and as we have refined it over the years got down through some of the some of the initial major questions and got down to some of the specialized things that hopefully will help uh create another tool in the toolbox for regional farmers and that's been our interest in it uh you know uh they asked me early on are you going to work with this crop and we're a regional comprehensive university with a commitment to work with our region and 
if it's uh, if it's good for our region, then uh, we ought to be working with it. And that was my uh, viewpoint from the very beginning. And uh, and fortunately, uh, we had the support of our administration. We had some interest among our region, certainly in our state, but particularly in our our region of the state. So we were able to to uh, kind of put that first crop out and go from there and and uh, and learn what we what we can every year. The research and the and the production focus has been a little bit different. Um, hemp's an interesting crop, certainly a fiber crop uh, with a with specialized uses is what I call it. One of them being the fiber. We're fortunate to have a fiber business right here in Callaway County that's making use of some of the the uh, if you want to call it the waste hemp uh, uh, fiber uh, from seed or CBD production, and uh, ranging to obviously the CBD. And I've got to mention, in 2014, when we did the center, we did a T-shirt with the top five uses of what what was called by most at that point in time industrial hemp. We prefer to call it agricultural hemp because it's an agricultural commodity and not a, necessarily an industrial commodity. But uh, CBD wasn't even on the top five list in 2014. So primarily it's taken over the market and all the talk in hemp. But uh, we also have the seed and grain uh, uses of that and particularly rolling forward hopefully some seed uses so it's a very versatile crop from the fiber standpoint from the cbd standpoint and also from the seed a a real triple crop if you will yeah well i tell you what when uh, you know there was talk about this even 10 or 15 years ago a lot of people thought about rope and clothing and so forth but i tell you what this is proven to be a very a uh, diverse crop that that can be used in a lot of ways, from animal feeds to textiles to oil products, paper products, wood, insulation, and uh, you, you know I've uh, even seen it being integrated into uh, fiber that's used in the uh, fill in uh, automotive seats in different parts. Yeah. Uh, Actually, the initial release uh, come out from then Commissioner Comer was talking about automobile parts, and that ranges all the way up. And today I was on a uh, a Zoom conference with uh, the Secretary of Agriculture, the USDA Secretary of Agriculture, and our State Commissioner of Agriculture, and he's going to box up a, a box of uh, masks made out of hemp fiber that's going to send to the to the Secretary. So it's got war, far-ranging uh, uh, opportunity. Well, that's timely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you you need a you need a, a, a material, you got hemp, uh, make a lot out of it. You, you mentioned Secretary Sonny Perdue, and uh, you and I both attended a uh, hemp roundtable discussion in Louisville about this time last year with, with uh, Sonny Perdue and also Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. And at that meeting, uh, growers and processors and, and manufacturers and retailers all talked about how the federal legalization of hemp was a step in the right direction uh, but the industry wasn't truly going to thrive until all the federal regulatory agencies were in lockstep. It's because there's so many agencies from the FDA to the DEA to the Department of Transportation, Department of Treasury and so forth that have a role in this and all view it differently. Uh, so a year later down the road, are we any farther? Absolutely. We're further down the, the road, but it's a, lo- a long winding road still to go. Uh, there's still daily challenges that come up. Uh, you know, I've referred to the farm bill and, and legalizing it as an agricultural commodity as taking the blinders off. Uh, you know, uh, instead of wandering aimlessly now uh, looking for a direction, we're trying to chart a path and, uh, and, and in a direct and uh, economical, economic development way. Um, well, certainly we've made a lot of progress. Uh, we have interim, interim rules. 
not all uh, not all states have uh, have gone under those yet. Some are still operating and had the opportunity to operate under the pilot program uh, with some challenges with the interim rule, but we continue to make modifications there and look at challenges and address those challenges. We've addressed the transportation standards. They've addressed some of the other standards in that. Certainly the testing is certainly evolving, but, uh, you know, we still face challenges. Uh, our our uh, Hempwood uh, operation uh, was just notified by their shipping partner about two weeks ago that they would no longer ship their Hempwood product because uh, their company had uh, created a policy that uh, they were not going to deal with him. Huh. So, uh, but no, I can't figure that out. I can't figure out anybody turning down business from the legal commodity at this point in the in the evolution. But we still got a lot of PR work behind us. I mean, we hear all the way from uh, in today's uh, conference uh, that was part of the Southern Ag Directors Conference that I was allowed to sit in on. Uh, Hemp was both mentioned by, as you mentioned, Leader McConnell and and Secretary Purdue. So it's still on the still on the dashboard it's still it's still uh, in works and uh, we got a lot of progress to go but we're we're going to get it figured out so i think one of the encouraging things that uh, you guys are doing there with the center for hemp is uh, creating partnerships in the community and uh, th- throughout the region and that's been big in in helping everybody organize and get on the same page absolutely uh, i call our best uh, our best work connecting the dots uh, our, our, my associate dean uh, uh, Brian Parr and myself, uh, we fielded about a call a day. It seemed like uh, at this time last year, and and uh, so we rolled out in May of 2014 the Center for Agricultural Hemp at Murray State. That was going to kind of headquarter. We didn't roll that out with any lavish budget or any significant shift in workforce, but we certainly uh, called on the industry partners to step up, and we had some that stepped up. Uh, on a, a continuing basis, some on an annual basis, uh, some producers that joined our effort. We created a little network, and we were able to start addressing some of those uh, some of those problems. We've had a, a, a myriad of guests to come through Kentucky, and at this time last year, we were hosting the USDA officials to come through that were setting up the standards. Uh, we hosted uh, uh, the uh, the chairman of the House Ag Committee, uh, committee uh, Colin Peterson, here, who had a valid, valid, uh, uh, and, and uh, passionate interest in fiber hemp. Uh, we were able to take him on a tour of, of our fields and our facilities and our uh, re- relating industry. Um, we can, we've continued to work on that. We've worked on it with a meager budget and a lot of students. Uh, we had some probably 150 research trials last summer out in the field, uh, ranging from the impact of fiber hemp on uh, uh, CBD levels and CBD hemp to uh, soil amendments to chemical applications uh, to uh, biological applications. Uh, this year, we're working with a few uh, uh, isolated companies on some very in-depth research uh, and uh, some proprietary in, in, uh, research that hopefully will continue to move that along. But it's been a good center of operations for us. Uh, again, it's, it's put our mark on the wall. And it's allowed us to connect the dots. Anytime somebody calls, we ask them, why don't you join our center, become a partner. We'll be glad to work with you. Uh, we're working uh, We're working now with some industries that have come in that are wanting some help in securing some products. So we're able to kind of go and, and uh, uh, negotiate that uh, hurdle as well. 
So I know when I go to farm shows around the country and I see some of the big companies like New Holland and Agco starting to double down and, and really advertise uh, products for the uh, use in hemp production, that uh, this thing has gone to a whole nother level. Absolutely. Um, working in it in 2014, I can't tell you how many calls I made to chemical companies to and, and contacts, not all calls, but contacts, chemical companies, equipment manufacturers, and uh, uh, invariably I'd get referred around two or three times, but there was not a whole lot of interest. In one case with a company, they told us uh, uh, we're not interested. We're not doing anything related to him. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, that cycled back around last year, and that company come back and said we're ready to do some work on him. Hmm. So uh, certainly the legalization and the passage of the Farm Bill got a lot of attention. Uh, it got a lot of needed uh, infrastructure uh, work. You know, equipment manufacturers that you talked about are some of the ones that we really need to get on board because in some of the production models, and I say well, there's 13 different prop production or processing centers within the geographic service region of Murray State, and there's 13 different methods of getting it done. Hmm. And uh, only one of those is a mechanical method. Most of it's a lot of hand labor, and I'm just not sure there's a that the, that the future of the whole industry is based on doing hand hand uh, harvest and a lot of hand labor it's going to need to be certainly mechanized to be profitable to be uh, extended in those areas and we begin to have some of those companies they've all been on our farm and on area farms doing research they're all uh, have devoted specialists to it now and so companies even that you wouldn't think about uh, that are interested in uh, in, uh, in in hemp and in agriculture ranging from companies like air gas to our, our chemical companies to to irrigation companies, to uh, mechanized uh, planting and harvesting uh, companies, uh, in addition to uh, uh, soil amendments, in addition to fertilizer. Uh, you know, there were fertilizer businesses that started up as startups just to deal with hemp, hemp fertilization. So uh, it's been a, a, a wide awakening in, in agriculture to deal with this industry. Well, for all the work that you guys have put into it over the last six years, that has to be pretty gratifying to see the ball finally starting to move down the field on it. Well, it's gratifying and frustrating at the same uh, at the same time. You know, it seems like it's been the three steps forward, two steps back. Uh, certainly, uh, there were a lot of, um, uh, and we made it from the very beginning. Our motto, uh, besides connecting the dots, is uh, Center of Agricultural Hemp will underpromise and overperform, and not all of those guarantees have uh, come to fruition in hemp. There's been a lot of overpromising and underperforming and it's difficult to to migrate through that sometimes certainly farmers i've said all along if farmers uh if you showed them an economic advantage and a profit and uh they were able to get some basic information they'd be overproducing it in three years uh unfortunately we got there in some cases in one year so <laughs> yeah. there's certainly some production challenges there uh there's some marketing challenges there's some processing challenges uh, we were concerned from the very get-go last year. You know, we told people, be sure and don't invest more than you can afford to lose. And uh, we were concerned that the processing capability of all the hemp that went in the ground wouldn't be there. And, in fact, some of those challenges developed. So uh, uh, we, hopefully we're going to take a, a, a growth, uh, some growth spurts here, and we're going we're gonna to come out of this uh, at the bottom of the funnel with an industry uh, that will be legitimate, an industry that will be profitable, and that an industry where we have a uh, 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 just a, 
a myriad of uh, of good 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 faith uh, processors and production specialists. Well, I know a lot of farmers have eyed hemp as a means of diversifying crops, and then uh, I've heard tales of people who have never grown a thing and tried to jump into it and failed miserably. So, uh, you know, what what are some of the key considerations that someone should make before getting involved in hemp production? It's been very interesting. I've gone to a lot of conferences and uh, and production conferences, and unbelievably, uh, this past year, in every conference, that I went to, they do a show of hands. How many of you grown hemp before that was at the conference? Up to 700, 800 people. And there would be, you know, 25 people that had grown hemp. The rest of the crowd was there, was just there for interest in thinking about it. So everybody's heard of it now. Everybody's wanted to jump in. And, uh, and you know, the main consideration is, is this for me? Uh, does, does it meet my labor needs? Does it meet my capital needs? Uh, it will consume your time. And there's uh, there's there's some farmers that still got hemp in inventory this year that didn't have contracts to matriculate or or had those contracts uh, uh, avoided or or whatever. So uh, again, going back to it, don't be afraid. Uh, don't be uh, don't be willing to uh, to invest more than you're willing to lose. And uh, number two, have a contract. Have an idea of what the end market's going to be. You know, uh, as as American farmers and people involved in agriculture, we've learned we can grow most anything. But again, if it's not a market uh, for it, or we don't have a, a profit potential, uh, we don't need any more losing propositions. We've had too many things go wrong here the last couple of years, and uh, we don't need another thing to go wrong. So uh, do your research. Uh, uh, hook up with a, with a university or somebody that has some experience. Hook up with another producer. Network, network, network. Uh, talk to people. Talk to processors. Uh, I, I don't want us to overlook the fiber industry. I couldn't go through talking without talking about the fiber part of it because I think long term there's some possibilities there. Uh, we partnered with a partner here called Hempwood, and they're taking the the, the hemp fiber and they're making uh, six by six blocks. It's going to be used in the furniture business. It's going to be used in hardwood flooring. Right now they're focusing on picture frames and tables, and uh, it's very much a niche market. But they've been able to make a go of it. They're operating here now for over a year. Uh, we had their grand opening last fall, and uh, they've been working on this project for three or four years. So it's a it's a bright light uh, that's shining on that industry right now. We got other partners that we're looking at are looking at packaging, looking at other opportunities for some of the waste fiber, uh, either from CBD or hemp. So uh, look for opportunities. Don't just uh, think because somebody else has done it uh, that uh, that I can do it. And if they if they failed, didn't make money that uh, that I can make money because sometimes uh, sometimes those challenges are not bordered by our fence rows uh, between farms. So if I'm a farmer and I decided it is for me, what what do I what's the first step? What do I need to get started? You know, in terms of seed versus plant, equipment, etc. Where where do I start? Work backwards from marketing. Find some place that you're going to be able to market. Uh, you know, there's no. Uh, Chicago Board of Hemp uh, prices right now uh, that you can monitor. It's all on an individualized basis. So I like to always tell people get you a market and then work backwards because that's gonna that's gonna really dictate uh, uh, how many plants per acre you you plant. That's gonna dictate how you harvest it. That's gonna dictate how you fertilize it. Uh, that's gonna dictate what equipment you need from a setter, uh, a transplanter uh, to a, a grain drill. Uh, to uh, a hand peg, you know, it's uh, it's uh, it's it's all uh, it's all far 
far-reaching. So uh, work backwards from that and then uh, get your production uh, input uh, together. Uh, we commonly say it's very much along the lines of, of uh, wheat fertilization uh, uh, pro- protocol. Um, uh, it, it won't. Uh, I've gone to conferences uh, where people have said, uh, stood up in front of the group and say, hemp will grow without fertilization or hemp will grow on low fertility fertility land or there are no pests associated with hemp bull it's just like any other crop it grows good on good soil it grows it goes uh, uh better on great soil uh it is it is susceptible to pests and and uh diseases and insects uh, that we're just now uh figuring out uh but with the, most of those are treatable most of those hurdles are are uh, uh able to be uh gone around or, or gone through and uh and provide that but you need to be aware of what you're wanting to do and then uh follow that through uh certainly it's like any other crop it uh, depends on water and on on uh, environmental conditions but then uh be sure that you test and choose a variety that you know is going to be safe or that you think is going to be safe you know we found last year that even some varieties that were on the threshold of being safe all of a sudden turned out to be what we call hot uh, the ghc level too high so uh you certainly don't want to. Nobody wants to see the fruits of the labor destroyed at the end of the year. They want to see them marketed. So, what's next for the Center for Agricultural Hemp? Well, number one, we've got a pretty aggressive research agenda for this uh, for this uh, spring fall, working with uh, some companies uh, on some very specialized research. Uh, we're going to continue some of our uh, research. You know, a wide open field is uh, in something that we've really had some leadership in is uh, feeding. Uh, of uh, of hemp uh, hemp grain and hemp uh, products, uh, we fed it to both uh, poultry and uh, and swine in uh, in trials. Uh, we have some very very promising results in egg and broiler production uh, from the standpoint of omega threes and omega sixes that we found is r- uh, part of our pilot. Uh, as you might know, or may people may or may not know, it is still illegal to feed a hemp uh, additive. Uh, and primarily, we're told because there's no research. Well, we're trying to be part of a solution to a problem. We're provided trying to provide that to research, but it's very slow moving. So uh, I don't know what it holds there. We're going to continue some of those feeding trials, and then uh, we've also got our Pratt Veterinary Center, who's an animal disease diagnostic laboratory in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, 60 miles away, that has been approved and is uh, adding up uh, machinery and equipment. <coughs> excuse me to uh, uh, do some testing. So uh, they're going to be doing testing, and they'll be able to do testing for heavy metals and other things that might have impacted it, in addition to doing the CBD and THC testing. This is some really exciting stuff here. Folks want to know more about the work you're doing. Where can they go to learn more? Well, we have a website, the Center for Agricultural Hemp. As you mentioned earlier, we have a journal of agricultural hemp. Uh, it can all be accessed by the murraystate.edu slash AGR website and look for uh, Center for Agricultural Hemp. It'll have a link to the Journal of Agricultural Hemp, where we've solicited articles from all across the country. Uh, Dr. Jeff Young coordinates that uh, uh, that uh, journal for us, and uh, we provide information. Uh, our website will lead you to our contact information here at Murray State. Uh, they can email me at tbrannon at murraystate.edu uh, or get my contact information off the website. Uh, again, uh, murraystate.edu slash AGR. Uh, and we try to keep it current and keep the contact information on there. Uh, follow us, come visit us, give us a give us a call. Let us know how we can help. We're totally interested in moving this industry forward. 
with its share of challenges and opportunities, we do need some bright lights, and we're trying to be one of those bright lights. Well, I tell you what, uh, you guys are doing some really cutting-edge work there, and I hope everybody will go check it out. And, Dr. Brandon, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us here on Fast Line Fast Track. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure to talk about agriculture. We appreciate your your publication and what you do to keep agriculture informed in any way that we can help you or help agriculture in general. That's what we're here for. Again, that was Dr. Tony Brandon, the Dean of the Hudson School of Agriculture at Murray State University in Murray, Kentucky. Well, now it's time for another installment of Bushels and Cents with our buddy, the Hot Rod Farmer, Ray Bohax. Don't forget, you can check out all his great multimedia content at FarmMachineryDigest.com. Welcome to Bushels and Cents, a weekly podcast from the Farm Machinery Digest. I am your host, Ray Bohax, the Hot Rod Farmer. And never forget, it is not what you make, but what you keep that counts. The heater core in your semi sprung a leak. You remove it and find numerous pinholes in the tubes and tanks. Thinking nothing of it, you install a new one and the heater works fine. A year later, it begins to leak again. Same thing, pinholes, but now the radiator has the same issue. You replace both and have around $1,500 into the repairs, not counting your time. The two heater cores and the radiator were attacked by electrolysis due to a poor ground. The truck's electrical system was grounding via the engine coolant and eating away the aluminum parts. A simple semi-annual test with a voltmeter in the coolant would have revealed the poor ground. Your lack of making this part of your PM procedure cost the equivalent of 429 bushels of corn, not including your time. Agriculture runs on machinery, profits on reliability. Visit FarmMachineryDigest.com where steel and soil meet. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, it's great to have with us the Render Sisters, a new sister duo with some incredible harmonies and a bright future ahead in the country music industry. They also have their roots on a farm in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Mary Keaton and Stella, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Hey. Hi, how are you? Good, good. We've got their father, Chad, with them also. Chad, how you doing? Good, good. Thank you for having us. So before we get going, why don't we have everybody introduce themselves here so everybody can be familiar with you. Okay, my name is Mary Keaton Render. I am 16, and I'm the older of the sisters. Hi, I'm Stella. Um, I'm 14, and as if you can't tell, I'm the younger one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Chad Render, and uh, I'm old. Uh, we live in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. We farm here, uh, and uh, that's about it. We got a new single, Lost Boy, out now. We'll talk about that in a bit. It's a great song, and your career is starting to take off. So to start things off, let's back up a bit to where it all began. Tell us when you started singing and what got you into it. Yes, um, Stella and I began singing very young at church, and we actually didn't start singing together until about she was eight and I was 10. We actually used to fight quite a bit over music. So there was a time whenever we were banned from singing together, but now we love it. And it just kind of all started from there. And you really cut your teeth playing the smaller venues there around Arkansas. Yes, we started doing a lot of um, county fairs and state fairs. And we got in with a little music school here in Arkansas called Jetway Performance. And things just kind of went up from there. We started getting bigger shows and performing at cooler venues. And it's just kind of taken off. So do you remember the first time you stepped on stage as a duo? What was that like? Um, it was 
crazy because, I mean, we love to sing together and we feed off of each other's energy. Um, we were very nervous, but it's a lot better singing with her than it is trying to sing by ourselves. And I also think once people heard us sing together, they preferred that than <laughs> us on our own. What's that experience like when you get to get up and perform in front of other people? I think it's just kind of surreal, you know, hearing people sing a song that you've written or that you've covered is just really neat to hear a crowd sing it with you. And I understand it was a grandmother who got you into singing. Yes, um, we love our grandma so much. She was a music teacher and she just brought us up in music and always listening to music and always singing and playing the piano with us. Yes, it's actually our dad's mom. So okay. Whenever he would be on the farm working as a child, she'd be inside teaching piano lessons, and that's just how we grew up. Well, how about you, Dad? Do you have any musical chops? You know, uh, I was forced to take piano lessons for four years, and uh, I wasn't real fond of it, and I just wanted to always be on the farm, and so uh, I just did not take into the musical, uh, uh, the musical role that my mom, you know, she was very talented, and I just never fell into those, uh, into those footsteps. So what's it been like to watch their rise thus far? Oh man, it's been a journey. It's a, it's been a, it's been a blessing just watching them. You know, it just seems like yesterday they were, they were you know knee high to, to waist high, then now they're golly just blossoming and singing on stages, and uh, it's really just taken off. And as a father, you know, it's just it just makes me proud to see them up there doing what they do. So who were some of the artists who influenced you, or some of those that you've patterned your career after? Um, I think we sound or kind of sound towards kind of Casey Musgraves music on how it's very raw and vulnerable. And I think we kind of had that sound, but we very much look up to Pam Tillis. Um, she's amazing. And she she's amazing. Helped us out a lot. So we definitely look up to her. Well, she was one of the artists who helped you along the way and co-directed your debut video and has described your harmonies as Everly-esque, referring to Don and Phil, the Everly brothers, who've long been held up as the gold standard for blood harmonies. That has to be quite a thrill to be compared in that kind of company. It is. It is. We were once told there's nothing like family harmony. You can't beat it. And we've tried to live up to that. <laughs> yes. So you're there in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, when you get the bug and decide you want to try your hand at this as a career, where do you even start to try to navigate this? Because things do get awful complicated when you try to make a career of this out of Nashville. Um, yes, here in Arkansas, really, I mean, if we were to tell one of our friends like, hey, we're recording music in Nashville, they'd be like, what? I mean, it's just not really a thing. It's not here. very common at all. At all. To see somebody that you know go off and do that. Like you hear people doing it, but it's just kind of uncommon. So in our town, especially, there's just not that jump for music. So it's definitely very different whenever we get to go to Nashville and record because they're just on a different level. So where did you even find the right connections to get started in Nashville? Um, well, at our small music school that we go to about an hour away, um, PCG uh, with Bernard and all of them, they came and they did like a little preview day and they just saw something in us and they wanted us to come be a part of their program. We met um, Pam two years ago at a little meet and greet she was doing at the Opry and ever since then she's just kind of wanted a part in our music and 
that's helped us a lot. And for anyone unfamiliar, PCG is an artist development program based out of Nashville. And if you remember, Ava Rowland, who was on one of the early episodes of Fast Line Fast Track, is a PCG artist. I know she's got some new music coming out. We'll try to get her on the show uh, coming up here in the next few weeks. Uh, what has the learning curve been like from the business side of this? There has been a learning curve just for us and especially our parents since we are minors with how you go about doing everything in the music world. So it's totally uh, different to what we ever knew. We didn't know how much went into it to one song. So we've, we've been amazed and we're learning. So we're doing good. Uh -huh. What's been the most exciting part of this since you've been with PCG and since you've been doing some recording and getting out there to perform a little bit? What's your favorite? Um, I don't think my favorite was like after you write a song and you record it, just getting to hear all the hard work you put into it and then making a video for it. It's just all so fun just to see all the work that you put into it and something finally comes out of it. My favorite was definitely the video and having um, Josh Sakima come down and Pam come down. And it was just, it was so fun. What was the whole music video experience like? Really, I thought it was going to be like, you have to do every line like over and over and over again, but you actually do like full takes of the song. So it's, it's different, but it was just a lot of coaching and a lot of, okay, wait, do this, do this. And that's good because, I mean, we learned so much that day yes. from everybody there. We learned a lot. So how are you balancing school with career? It's hard sometimes, but, I mean, we always manage. I mean, we come up from school, we practice, we get our Zooms done with our people, you know, that we work with. So, I mean, you just have to have a good balance between your priorities. When you talk about Zoom, are you guys still doing co-writes right now? Yes, we do do a lot of um, vocal coaching and co-writing with Britton Cameron. Um, he's great. We love him so much. Uh, so we do a lot of that because, you know, with all that stuff going around, we can't really go see anybody. So do either of you have any interests outside of music and performing? Um, I think just like being with family. I garden. Uh, we planted a garden this year. We did. So that was really fun. It was like we were little farmers <laughs> in our little garden. We loved it. We did. We also love dogs, so we're very into animals. So that's good, too. Well, you talk about the family farm there in Arkansas. Tell us about it and tell us about the impact the farm life has had on your career. Farming is uh, what we what I was raised as a boy, you know, and then uh, I was raised in Jonesboro and picked up a farm here in Pine Bluff. And we farm around 6,200 acres, rice, soybeans, and corn. And uh, just, you know, uh, I guess just trying to find a balance between all the work that a farm takes and, you know, you have your family and uh, just uh, trying to balance everything to ha have a home life and, uh, and just the demanding, the demand that farming, you know, takes on you. Well, how do you find that balance? Well, you know, uh, we're fresh off of a hurricane. And so uh, that's a good question that you really, you know, it's just whatever is biting you the hardest. You know, I know we were all trying to rush around, trying to get a lot of stuff harvested before this hurricane hit us. And you just got to do what you have to do. And I have a very understanding family and a very understanding wife. And my girls, they know uh, kind of how, how things work. So, you know, when it's time to work, we work really hard. And then when we uh, have downtime, we, uh, we, we sure enjoy each other, you know, when we do have slow times. So 6,200 acres. How have you seen that farm grow and evolve over the past couple decades? 
Oh, wow. You know, so I started in 1999 with a thousand acres and, uh, you know, that was overwhelming starting out with that. And then each year, you know, we just seem to add a little bit or just, you know, uh, a little bit more comes along. And as we grew this business, uh, you know, man, technology has changed as in any industry, but, you know, golly, now we have tractors that will drive themselves, um, programs that show mapping, just, it, it amazes me. And it's almost a little bit of a, a learning curve for me because you know i'm not real tech savvy but we're gonna you know i've had to um, i guess be forced to learn a lot of this technology because it's here and for us to be successful we're going to have to uh, implement it and you know make it useful to us and it is it's just a little bit of a learning curve for me of all the technology you've seen come about during that time what do you feel like has been the most useful to you well you know uh, <clears throat> as bad as i talk about the internet probably just everything is so instantaneous if we want the markets we pull out our phone there's the markets uh, we want to know something about a combine going over on field number four we pull out our phone tap into the internet we see what that combine's doing so you know that's probably just instant knowledge that we need a lot of times that back in the day you'd have to go drive somewhere to check on a combine or you'd have to go to the office to look at a computer screen to, to look at the market so you know just the internet and how we can pull out these phones and just have instant information, you know. And one of the interesting things I understand you guys are doing is helping farm laborers learn to manage and move into farming themselves. You know, uh, I've been blessed, really blessed with some some awesome guys that, that I work with and they help me on the farm. And uh, uh, a couple of the younger guys, man, they, uh, they're just really good and, and wanted to step out into farming and uh, and I didn't want to lose those guys, and so I've kind of talked to them and said, you know, look, how about when some ground comes open for rent, y'all just kind of, you know, take on the responsibility of renting that land, and, you know, we'll work out at LMI and on the equipment side of things, because anymore, when you have a, a young guy wanting to get started farming the equipment and what it takes to get in, in, the, in the debt side of farming is just over overwhelming. And so if I can get these boys to, you know, get their credit established, get the landlord seeing what they know, you know, that they're competent of, of doing the, the business side of farming. You know, I think it's a win-win for me because I still can keep those guys looking after my operation and then they're doing their own little thing on their operation, building up their, uh, their uh, I guess, um, their name for themselves, you know. So what does 2020 look like on the render farm? Well, we're just getting into harvest. You know, we're, we've been harvesting since probably August the uh, about August the fifth. So we're uh, we've been going, you know, for almost a month now, and uh, it, it's it's okay. It's not a bin buster year, but you know, it, hey, we'll, as long as we're pulling something out of the fields, that's good. So, what's the long term plan for the Render Sisters? Have you recorded more materials or an album on the way? And where are you at in terms of touring? Well, we actually had a. Um, a new song coming out September 19th and the video follows the next Friday um, on the 26th I believe. Excellent. What's the name of that so folks can be looking for it? Um, count on me, count on you. And it's a song about us being sisters. So it was actually the first song we ever wrote together yes. and the easiest song we've ever wrote together. And I think it's just because it's so easy to write about things that are true and that you love. So we did. It was, yes. We love it. It's so near and dear to our hearts. 
What has this whole COVID journey looked like for you? You mentioned not being able to get back to Nashville. So in terms of planning out a career and being able to get out and tour to support new music, what's that looking like right now? Right now, it's been like we haven't really gotten to perform many places just because a lot of venues are canceling events because of, you know, circumstances. Um, but we have got a lot of writing and recording done. So whenever things do start opening up and we can start releasing more songs and getting to play some stuff of our own. But I also feel like during this quarantine and not being able to go places, I feel like we've um, really built our name on social media. So people, more people will want to come watch us. So what are some of the goals you have for the short term and the long term of your career? Uh, short term, we have been recording some songs. So hopefully, by the end, you know, by probably a year from now, we're hoping to have an EP out of five or six songs that we've done and done some videos too. And I think long term, Stella and I just want to see where this music is going to take us, you know, if it's to performing or to a future long career with it is what we hope. So. We're just trying to get as much done as we can. So you talked about the new single earlier, Lost Boy, which you co-wrote with Britton Cameron. And we should mention that he's written with everyone from Don Williams to Lone Star to John Party. So he's got some solid credits. Where did you find the inspiration for this song? Um, I really just think um, we wanted to reach people like that are hurting, that are lost, that, I mean, they can know there's always someone there to help them and always someone who knows what they're going through because i think in a time in all of our lives there's a time where we've helped where we have felt lost i mean we can look back on times just as being teenagers in school where we didn't have somebody to sit with at lunch or we didn't have anybody to talk to and you know it goes through all stages of life you have your time of being lost and we just wanted to show people that there is hope there is hope for whatever you're going through. And again, the video for this song was co-directed by Pam Tillis. How did you guys come to meet Pam Tillis and how has she helped you guide your career along the way? Um, Pam, I said earlier, we did meet her two years ago at a meet and greet and she's just kept in touch with the people at PCG and she always wanted to mentor a girl duo. And Stella and I just came along, and we really didn't have any experience at all. And so she has just kind of mentored us through every stage that we've hit so far. And she's really just trying to mold us into experienced artists. So it was amazing. Uh -huh. I mean, the whole, the whole day, the, the video shoot, I mean, she was just so creative like she would think of the craziest stuff like we would just be sitting out there and she'd be like i think we need a rug right here just to put in the corner like we need something and where our minds are just like we don't know so and she's always so supportive in what we're doing and always willing to help and she's just so amazing and she's such a great artist as well well before we go any further let's hear one from the render sisters this is lost boy on fast line fast track shoulder you can cry on I can be that girl to save you if you want to maybe I can be the one I know most things about you and I feel your pain 
Though you sit right beside me, you don't know my name. There's only so many prom queens and so many kings on the hill. Can't you see you're just another flavor of the month? She's gonna break your heart and leave you crying in the dust when bridges burn. Where will you turn after the thrill? tell you it doesn't get any better than that for the first time out of the gate oh wow thank, thank you I, I heard i definitely heard the casey musgraves influence in there well thank you i think that's a compliment so aside from casey musgraves who are some of the other artists that you're listening to today um i love old country just to listen not old country but you know like the 80s 90s country so i love old the us. <laughs> yes all the us before our time but not old music um, I love to listen to Dolly. Um, I just love her sass, her all-around presence. I mean, I think you just know if she was in the room, you know? Yeah. So I like that, definitely. What's the rest of 2020 looking like for you guys? I think for us, um, we're just going to try to keep... We've, we've got um, three songs that have been mastered, so I think we're probably going to start working on getting them put out or maybe getting another video. So we definitely have some things to look forward to for the rest yes. of 2020. So what do you think about this, Dad? It seems like you got uh, you, you got some hit makers on your hands. Man, it makes me smile. It makes me smile. I'm, I'm very proud of them. We're just blessed. And uh, just 
you know, really, like you say, we're just surrounded by good folks that, that uh, you know, um, have taken us in and they're guiding us uh, down, a, down a good path right now, you know. Uh, what has been, uh, have there been any eye openers for you in terms of dealing with the business side of this? Well, you know, yes, yes, because, you know, uh, me and my wife, we we're, we're, have never been on this side of, of any kind of music uh, productions. And, man, I, for a three-minute song, there's a whole, whole lot that goes into it to get it out on a, on a uh, Spotify or, or music uh, venue type thing. So it's just I did not realize how much work and the process it took to get a song not only written but produced and then out on on the air so I, it was just uh, mind-boggling for me just because i never had been around it but uh it's amazing well now you've done it and they can't take that away from you so that's pretty special <laughs> yes yes and i'm just you know i'm so very thankful and proud of these girls for the work they put into it because it is a lot of work on them so if people want to know more about the render sisters follow your career and download your music where can they go to do that um uh, for Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, you can find us under Render Sisters Music. And on TikTok, we are the Render, or Render Sisters. So, about Render Sisters Music on everything except for TikTok. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Fastline Fast Track. And please know that you've got a home here anytime you want to come back and share new music with us. Well, thank, thank you, thank for, you us. for asking us and for letting us be on your show. Yeah. Well, we want to send a special shout out to our musical sponsor, the Ernest Tubb Record Shop, 417 Broadway in the heart of downtown Nashville, Tennessee. And I hope that when you're in the Nashville area, you'll go and check them out. They've got a great selection of vinyl, CDs, and merchandise. And if they don't have it, I know they'll find it for you. They have some new hours, so pay close attention. They'll be open Sunday through Thursday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., and Friday and Saturday from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. So when you're in their area, stop by and say hi and tell them you heard it on Fast Line Fast Track. I also want to say a special shout out to our friends at Farm Life and thank them for their support of Fast Line Fast Track. Please go over and give them a like on their Facebook page so you can connect with others interested in agriculture. And join me over on their page every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern as I join Brandon Deal to talk about the things that are on the minds of farmers. And speaking of things that are on farmers' minds, harvest season is here. If you have any last-minute needs for combines, heads, grain carts, grain dryers, trailers, or anything else, head on over to FastLine.com and check out the equipment locator with the price comparison tool featuring the Iron Average powered by Iron Solutions. That's FastLine.com. And while you're there on the website, be sure to sign up for the print catalog for your state or region. No need to head into town to pick one up off the convenience store rack. The FastLine catalog is being delivered directly to your mailbox, and it's still a favorite resource of farmers and ranchers across this great country. And remember to subscribe to the FastLine Fast Track podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Deezer, and Audible. And add our Spotify playlist to your library for all the music of past, current, and upcoming guests of the show. And be sure to hit us up on all the socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Well, now it's time for me to get on out of here. So till next time, it's Brent Adams saying y'all come back 
and bring along a friend. You've been listening to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group. To learn more about Fast Line's customer focused marketing solutions, visit FastLineMediaGroup.com and check out our brand websites FastLine.com, BigAg.com, and PinkTractor.com. If you have topic suggestions for future podcasts, drop us a line at Brent.Adams at FastLine.com. <laughs>